Good morning, beloved. We're going to continue our study of Ecclesiastes, uh, where we left off. We're in chapter 7, uh, looking at verses 1 through 12. I'm going to go ahead and read, then we'll pray, and then we'll look at this together this morning. Chapter 7. A good name is better than precious ointment, and the day of death than the day of birth. It is better to go to the house of mourning than to go to the house of feasting, for this is the end of all mankind, and the living will lay it to heart. Sorrow is better than laughter, for by sadness of face the heart is made glad. The heart of the wise is in the house of mourning, but the heart of fools is in the house of mirth. It is better for a man to hear the rebuke of the wise than to hear the song of fools. For as the crackling of thorns under a pot, so is the laughter of the fools. This also is vanity. Surely oppression oppression drives the wise into madness, and a bribe corrupts the heart. Better is the end of a thing than its beginning, and the patient in spirit is better than the proud in spirit. Be not quick in your spirit to become angry, for anger lodges in the bosom of fools. Say not... Why were the former days better than these? For it is not from, why, from wisdom that you ask this. Wisdom is good with an inheritance, an advantage to those who see the sun. For the protection of wisdom is like the protection of money, and the advantage of knowledge is that wisdom preserves the life of him who has it. Uh, the theme of Ecclesiastes is that a view of, of life um, under the sun that is a naturalistic, humanistic, man-centered worldview says that man's mind and his experience determine reality. Which leads to one logical conclusion, and that is vanity of vanities, all is vanity, says the preacher. Uh, what does man gain by all the toil at which he toils under the sun? Ecclesiastes 1, verses 2 and 3. Now, we've been considering... Um, a series of refrains, um, these recurring phrases, these uh, repeated expressions uh, regarding the vanity of life under the sun. And such a worldview is but like vapor and, and grasping after wind. It's an empty endeavor, and it's, it's comparable to, to the effect of trying to capture steam in your hands. Now the preacher, who we believe is, is Solomon, traces the vanity of history, philosophy, pleasure, wealth, materialism, toil, that is, the work of one's hands, um, considering all of them from, from an under-the-sun perspective, an under-the-sun world view. And the only solution to, to such vanity of life and the emptiness of man's soul is faith in the, in the living God. The one who created all things and the one who governs all things by way of his providence. Um, only a God-centered worldview answers the problems to history, philosophy, materialism, um, toil, and so on. And along with, as we looked at a few weeks ago, the injustices of life. I mean, you can look and and bite your nails and pull out your hair and and live in 
absolute fear if you focus on the injustices of life, but you know, resting your head on the pillow of God's providence um, provides you know, some, some salve to the wound, if you will. But, but true hope and, and satisfaction of the soul um, is obviously situated beyond the visible material world. J. Stafford Wright says this, and I quote, If we're looking for signposts for living, we're more likely to gain insight when face-to-face with eternal things than in the noisy company where the deeper realities of life are drowned in food, drink, and levity. Remembering that life on earth does not go on forever, we are moved to look beneath its surface. End quote. Now, entering as we have the second half of the book of Ecclesiastes, the preacher king raises two rhetorical questions. We left off with those questions last week, chapter 6, verse 12. The first, for who knows what is good? For man, while he lives the few days of his vain life, which which passes like a shadow. The second, for who can tell man what will be after him under the sun? Now, the, the implied answer, of course, is, is no one can answer that with, with a secular, humanistic worldview. It can't be answered correctly. So the goal of Ecclesiastes, of course, is, is to provide the answer authoritatively and definitively as you work your way through the book. That is answered for us. And that, is, of course, is from a theocentric perspective of life, a God-centered worldview. Now, those answers, answers to those two questions in in verse 12, um, are given to us first from an overall perspective of that which I just described, and that is a a theocentric worldview, and and secondly, from wise counsel for living with a perspective under heaven, under the reign and rule of of, of Almighty God according to one's allotted time. Now, we've seen the theme repeated as we've been working our way through. For instance, notice chapter 2, verse 24. There is nothing better for a person than he should eat and drink and find enjoyment in his toil. This also I saw is from the hand of God. Okay, we can enjoy life. We can work, enjoy our work, see the fruit of our labor, and enjoy it with an under, the, under a heaven perspective. Ecclesiastes 3, I perceive that there's nothing better for them than to be joyful and to do good as long as they live. Also, that everyone should eat and drink and take pleasure in his toil. This is God's gift to man. Work is a gift. Ability, gift, gifting is a gift. Chapter 3, verse 22, So I saw there's nothing better than that a man should rejoice in his work, for that is his lot. Chapter 5, verse 18, Behold, what I have seen to be good and fitting is to eat and drink and find enjoyment in all the toil with which one toils under the sun the few days of his life that God has given him, for this is his lot. And if you notice the words good and better show up in all those verses. It's the same Hebrew term, tob, which means good. And when it's used in a comparative sense, it means more good than. Gooder, (laughs) better. So this section, chapter 7, verses 1 through 12, 
contains seven proverbs, seven sayings that are joined together by the repetition of the words good and better. Good and better. And they're intended to provide answers. Chapter 6, verse 12. Okay, so seven proverbial sayings that define for us what is indeed better. That is, what is good, and when it's used in the comparative sense, is better than this or that. Now, good means something excellent. Something excellent. This is something beneficial to man that provides true pleasure and true prosperity for, for living life in the world. So chapter 6, verse 12 asks the question, who can show us what the good is right, from an under-the-sun worldview? And the answer is they can't. It, all com- it comes up empty, as we have seen. Um, the ultimate context for the good life, of course, is to fear God. It's the fear of the Lord. That's the overall perspective and answer to the question. And that's tied together with wisdom for daily living. And that's what we see before us this morning. So here then we're providing answers to that question from an above the sun, that is an under heaven worldview. Seven sayings that express circumstances, attitudes, and actions that are better than that which is being described, the other that's being described. So by following the better, you can know life in the way God intended. That is, of course, the way God intended to live the good life in a world of sin, a world of suffering, in a world of struggle in this fallen world. So the wise will recognize the reality and they will live their lives with such a view that is according to God's counsel. Okay, so there's the introduction. So let's look at these. Um, Verse 1, a good name, he says, is better than precious ointment. Okay, good, again, means praiseworthy. Say good is praiseworthy. This is the thing that ought to be sought after. Um, A name here is in the sense of reputation. It's not your surname. It's not your first name. um, But it's what you're known to be. It refers to the designation of of character. Character. These are the things people say about you when they're trying to, to describe you. This is the what and who you really are. It's the observation of, of one's character as observed by others. You know, this is, you, know, you can say, you know, he or she is, is dependable. They're honest. This is a faithful individual. This person has the integrity to, to finish what they start. This guy isn't going to charge you on the high end and deliver on the low. Like, since Frega's not here, I'll use him. Okay? He's a guy of character. He, he, he's not going to promise you something up here and then deliver down here. He may promise here and give you above and beyond that which he promises. That's his character. So this defines the moral quality um, of an individual. You know, describing their well-deserved um, reputation. It is better than precious ointment. That is scented body oils. And they were used to overcome body odor. It's like our deodorant. 
See, then it would have been a rare um, and, and somewhat expensive luxury, scented body oils. Because no one, normally at least, wants to offend another because of body odor. Amen? Can I get a witness? <laughs> I mean, we, you don't think fondly of one who offends for the sake of a lack of bodily hygiene. Both then and especially now. If you have an apartment, you have a shower. Use it. <laughs> so the contrast that being, that's being made here is between the outward odors, that is the covering aroma of an exotic fragrance, as opposed to inner character. That's the contrast being made. So the focus here is the difference between the physical and the spiritual. So this is a call to wear the cologne of good character, if you will. The not good focus is the investment that is made to the outward. When precious ointment is the priority. When precious ointment is more important than inward character. So the something better than precious ointment that covers is godly character that's uncovered. That's revealed. And a good reputation that's based on that character. So the worldly man's concern is basically how people judge him based on his outward appearance. This is what the worldly man or woman is after. How I smell, how I appear, how I come across, what I wear. That's what's in most, most important to them. This is where their time and their money, their investments go. That's, that's their focus. That's the locus of their focus, is the outward. From and under the sun, worldview. You know, I mentioned clothing, you know, what you wear, um, because uh, ointment here is the chosen word in this poetic bo- book to, to speak of the outward man. To speak of the uh, the under the sun's the under the sun person's um, drive and passion is how he or she appears before others, what they wear, how they smell, so on. Now we're not condemning here quality cologne because I have a bottle in my house; it's really good, or quality clothing. All right. The focus is 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 uh, for us is the superficial focus of one who is merely focused on the outward, which becomes a substitute for character. Everything I have. So the locus of focus is on the outward. Usually, the lower one's character. Typically, the more focus there is on their cosmetics, their clothing, and their shopping, and where they shop. And again, there's nothing wrong with sharp clothes. We get this. There's nothing wrong with nice things. If that's your focus in, in, in how you appear before man over and above your character, that's the problem. So it's better than ointment. A good name, that is. Now, this is not to say that um, outward appearance has no need for attention. Amen? 
There are people who draw attention to themselves uh, for a lack of hygiene or a lack of um, wearing proper clothing at the proper place at the proper time. So the point here is a focus on the sweet-smelling godly spirit that is better than precious ointment. So the better way to live under heaven is to focus on um, inward character. That's the better than. Notice next, um, chapter, verse 1b, and the day of death is better than the day of birth. What on earth is that? Now, there's something very significant in realizing that you're going to die. Amen? Okay, it's very significant. It's very important. You know, I always try to emphasize that reality whenever I do a, a funeral because many people attempt to laugh their way through life and ignore death. So when death is seriously considered, we're, we're confronted with our own mortality. So this kind of begins to draw the, the picture for us that death is better than birth. We'll look at the, immediate, the, the context historically here in a minute. Now, he's not saying that death itself is better than life, but, but that death serves us better than birth. It's more beneficial to us than is birth because it, consider, it causes us to consider our ways. Death does. You're going to die. So for the believer, our best day, actually, is the day of our death. Our best day. Thomas Boston wrote this. In the day of his birth, the believer, in the day of his birth, he was born to die. In the day of his death, he dies to live. So as true as it is that the believer dies to live, in course, from a New Testament perspective, in Christ coming and having fulfilled the law, having died and rose again from the dead, ascending, um, ever living to make intercession for us, we're guaranteed that to be absent from this body is to be present with the Lord. That is much better. Paul said, for me to live is Christ, to die is gain. Now, in context to this Old Testament text, it seems to mean that it's better to live life with a good name than as compared to the outward beauty that you came into the world with. Hey, babies are beautiful, soft, they smell good for a few months. <laughs> Their breath is fresh for a few months, if not a year or so. So uh, there's no doubt about it that the, the time of birth is a time for feasting. It's a time of joy. You're not thinking of the end of your life when babies are born, typically. Right? If you have grandchildren, you're not thinking about your death. You're rejoicing in new life, as we ought. But it doesn't really cause you to consider your death as much as a funeral does. So babies are born soft, smooth, they have a beautiful outward appearance, they're cute, they're wonderful, and they certainly would have been anointed, by the way, with fresh-smelling ointment in this day. We use Johnson's baby oil, or we used when I was a baby. Remember baby oil? Remember that? Greasy, but it smells so good. 
you know, babies are born beautiful, but they can turn out to have very ugly character. Very ugly character. You cannot evaluate a child when he or she is born. Time will tell whether their inner beauty will match their outward born beauty. So it's better to die with a good name, good character, than to be born beautiful. I think that's building off the context of verse 1, more specifically. So in light of the next verse, it's better to call to mind the day of your death and the day of your birth. Verse 2, it is better... It is better to go to the house of mourning than to go to the house of feasting, for this is the end of all mankind, and the living will lay it to heart. So this is also another place that the the under-the-sun crowd wants to avoid. They want to part company here. They don't want to go to the place of mourning, the house of mourning. They love the parties. They love the weddings because weddings, typically, um, the uh, reception is just basically a free night of partying. So, nothing wrong with a good party. But if you live under the sun, from an under the sun perspective, you want to avoid the house of mourning. But here, we're told by the preacher king that that it's, it's better to go to a funeral. House of mourning. Right? When someone would die in the Old Testament, you would, you would mourn for many days. You would gather at their home, and you would mourn over the loss of the loved one. And in the Hebrew world, they would have been buried the same day they died. And then you mourn for many days. That's better than a wedding reception. We all love celebrations, amen? I do. We ought to. We should enjoy these seasons of life. But he's saying here it's more beneficial. Again, this is more beneficial to attend the company of the people who are mourning over the loss of a loved one, one who has died, than to feast joyously over something great. It's more beneficial. You know, attending a good funeral helps us to think about the very thing that most people try to put off, and that's your impending death. Try to ignore it. And some deny it altogether. Some try to fight it. Plastic surgery after plastic surgery. Man, I was watching this show the other day, a tribute to uh, Frank Sinatra, who would have been 100. And now he's just a dead guy. But I was, they, they were panning the, the camera was panning the crowd. You see all these people who are about 100. <laughs> and they had so many plastic surgeries, it, it looks terrible. It's like, let yourself go, man. You'd look so much better. So much better. So when we talk about a good funeral, we're talking about a biblically-based funeral, which, which encourages sober contemplation over your finiteness. That's what I mean by a good funeral. Because the result of the one who's wise, the wise recipient, learns how to make their days count for eternity. Mark was telling me just the other day, when were you in that car accident? When you are 19? When the Lord started to work in your life? You rolled that car, 18? At 18, he started to contemplate life by almost dying. 
And the Lord used that to bring him to faith a year later at 19. So death is a stark reminder that we're not all that there is in this world. The universe does not exist around us, and we do not control our own fate. So parties and feasts are good. They provide fellowship. They provide recreation and rest that we all need, and we need to participate in those kinds of things. Yet, generally speaking, they're not usually useful for contemplating eternity. Funerals are. Psalm 90, verse 12, it says, So teach us to number our days that we may get a heart of what? Wisdom. The words of Moses. Those who are wise, take this to heart. Fools live as though they'll never die. Fools are the ones who walk around the tops of, you know, sunset cliffs, the cliffs, blindfolded, laughing as they party. That's folly. Verse 3, sorrow is better than laughter, for by sadness of face the heart is made glad. The heart of the wise is in the house of mourning, but the heart of fools is in the house of mirth. So by laughter here, he doesn't mean enjoyment that is recommended throughout this book. We're encouraged to enjoy life, amen? Not for, you can't from an under-the-sun perspective, because you have no answers to all the difficult questions. But in under-the-heaven worldview, we can enjoy life, and we ought to. So it, it, this laughter is, is the laughter of the fool. This is frivolous laughter. Sorrow is better than that kind of laughter. You know, one of the great missionaries uh, in history, Adoniram Judson, who lived in the 1800s, um, was raised in the Christian home. His dad was a pastor. And he went off to college. He went off to Brown University, and um, his faith faltered. For he was influenced by one Jacob Eames. Jacob Eames was a deist. And... On Judson's 20th birthday, he went home and broke the hearts of his parents, telling them that that he had no faith. He didn't believe as they believe, and he wanted to be a playwright um, in uh, New York City. So he moved to New York City. Sometime later, a few years later, uh, when he was traveling, he came to an inn, and the innkeeper said, there's only one room available And it happens to be next to one who's in a very bad way. So all night long, the man in the room next to Judson was uh, groaning, gasping. And and um, Judson wondered, you know, is this guy ready to die? Which made him think, am I ready to die? But yet he also thought, you know, good deists don't think this way. And then he tried to remember what, you know, what Eames would say. What would, what would Jacob Eames say? So he woke up the next morning, the sun was shining, all his fears had vanished. And then he asked the innkeeper about the man next door. And he said, you know, how did he fare? How, did he make it through the night? And he said, no, he's dead. He says, do you happen to know who he was? He goes, oh, yes, I do. A man from the college in Providence, his name was Eames. Jacob Eames. Judson was stunned. 
And he, not, he, he wasn't converted immediately, but over the months, the Lord used this death of someone very close to him to, to bring him to the stark reality of his own finiteness and the fact that he had tried to run from the very God he, at one time as a young man, confessed. So the Lord used this death of Jacob Eames to bring Adoniram Judson to the faith, back to himself. So God used death, if you will, to bring forth life. That's how sorrow is better. Sorrow is better. It's good for the heart. That's the point. This kind of sorrow is good for the heart. There's wisdom then to be found in the midst of adversity. There's wisdom to be found in the midst of sorrow. So Solomon here, he's not recommending sorrow for its own sake. Amen? You don't want to be sorrow just to be sorrowful. <laughs> Live a miserable life. But it's for the sake of joy ultimately. Go to, we, we could paraphrase it like this. Go to funerals for the sake of your joy. Go to funerals for the sake of your joy. If you live life from a theocentric worldview and you have the resident presence of God, the Holy Spirit, and Christ who redeemed you, then life looks a lot different. Verse 5, It is better for a man to hear the rebuke of the wise than to hear the song of fools. For as the crackling of thorns under a pot, so is the laughter of fools. This also is vanity. You know, the song of the fool may flatter you. Flattery being someone, someone saying something to your face that's positive that they would never say behind your back. That's flattery. To say something positive to your face, they would never think of saying behind your back. And gossip's just the opposite. They'll say things behind your back they'd never say to your face. This describes something that will serve to really help you. The rebuke of someone who's wiser than you are. This is where someone steps into your life and they lovingly jar you into reality. Wise words spoken aptly can greatly benefit us. Amen? So in, in, in the adversity... In adversity, the wise here rebukes, and that kind of wisdom is better than the laughter of fools. The slap on the back, you're the greatest. Don't go changing, right? They, that's the song they sing. Don't go changing because you're perfect. Stay just the way you are. <laughs> so he says here, one of the best ways to live well is to receive correction from people who are wiser than you. They do exist. <laughs> Notice verse 6, the crackling of thorns under a pot. Right? The crackling of thorns under a pot, they don't produce much heat. They make a lot of noise. They're not good for very much at all. You can't warm stew with them. Luther said this. He says, they, crackling thorns, produce more flame than fire. They flare up and they die out. 
but no consistent heat is, is, is provided. So the laughter of the foolish people is the same. It doesn't produce much warmth, just folly. Riken says this, quote, It has all the frivolity without the jollity. He who laughs the loudest will not necessarily laugh the longest. You know, I see those who laugh at funerals. We do good funerals, meaning we preach the gospel. And when you're preaching the gospel, you get people out there mocking, laughing, giggling, elbowing their buddy. You know why? They're trying to ignore the reality of their finiteness. They're trying to laugh it off. That's the laughter of the fool. Jesus said this, Woe to you who laugh now, for you shall mourn and weep. And he was referring to final judgment and the fires of eternal hell. Okay, fire, which is eternal. Wrath, which is eternal. Hell is eternal. When foolish laughter will perish. No more. Verse 7, surely oppression drives the wise into madness and a bribe corrupts the heart. This is a difficult verse. Um, I think, really, it's a warning in the middle of all this. It's a warning that even the wise can be sidetracked in life and act from corrupt motives. In other words, it's possible to be corrupted. As a bribe, for instance, erodes character. So, number one, we should always hear the rebuke of those who are wiser than us. Nevertheless, nevertheless, we should always test the rebuke of the wise with Scripture. So perhaps there's some motive behind their rebuke, and perhaps they've been corrupted. I think that's the idea. Maybe Shoddy could go parse this and tell me if I'm right or not. Break this down. Bottom line, within Christ's church, as far as wise rebuke goes, um, we, we ought to give and take correction wisely. At the same time, don't listen to the rebuke of a fool, for they sing the song of folly. In bribes corrupt. That's all I got to say about that, because that's all I know about that. Verse 8. Wisdom is found in patience. Better is the end of a thing than its beginning, and the patient in spirit is better than the proud in spirit. Be not quick in your spirit to become angry, for anger lodges in the bosom of fools. Say not, why were the former days better than these? For it's not from wisdom that you ask this. Exercising patience in the midst of adversity. It reveals wisdom. It's a difficult thing to do. I'm convicted by this verse as I'm rather an impatient person. I'm very impatient with bad drivers because I'm a good driver. Sometimes boastful. <laughs> um, I found myself being very short. Okay, I'm going to Home Depot by myself. I'm all by myself. And I sin when I'm alone. The Holy Spirit convicts me. So I'm, I'm sitting in traffic. You know how someone, when you park at a red light and you can turn right, don't block the way the person who can turn right. Leave room. 
So I get up there. I'm going to Home Depot. I have a bunch of things to do. I've got places to go, people to see. I'm thinking this in my head. And then this person's slowing me up. And I'm actually thinking in my head, I have things to do. And all of a sudden, I'm deeply convicted, as though what I have to do is more important than what they're doing. And then I come to verses like this and just tear me up, break me down. Sometimes in conversations, I'm impatient. Get to the point. What's the main point? I don't want to hear all the drama before and after. What's the main point? (laughs) Terrible. Impatience. So the Lord shows me through verses like these, impatience is selfish, number one, foolish, number two, and number three, worst of all, prideful. Praise God for conviction. Amen? Rejoice over conviction. Or anger stored up, lodged in the bosom of fools. Now, we may feel better initially, and I speak again from experience, um, when we vent, when we blow off steam. You may feel good at the moment, but eventually it makes things worse. It's, counter, it, it, it's counterproductive. It has no redeeming value. We're reminded of this in James chapter 1, verse 19. Let every person be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger, for the anger of man does not produce the righteousness that God requires. So patience in in very trying circumstances is a characteristic of wisdom. Wisdom. Better is the outcome of of a thing than its beginning. Better is a well-prepared meal than one half-cooked. Amen? So if you're impatient and you eat it before it's done, it's not as pleasing as if you wait for the steak to rest. You rest your meat, right? You, you, you barbecue your meat and you let it rest. It tastes so much better. So this is like better is a, a, a fruit that's full grown than, than it's flower. And this, this takes patience. That's the idea. Better is the mature than the infantile. So those who grow upset before they're able to see the end, the end solution or situation, before knowing what the end result is, they show themselves, the scripture says, to be, to be fools. I've proven myself to be a fool more than once in my life. And then those who say, you know, things were so much better way back when, all that reveals is an unsatisfied heart. So it's better. To live, we've seen this throughout. It's better to live for the now and ultimately for the glory of God. So the fool says things were better. There was less evil in the world back in grandma's day. When I was young, I thought the 1800s were so great for some reason. It'd be so much better to live back then. Oh, going to an outhouse in the middle of the night, that's better. That's better. Riding into town and meeting some drunk cowboy could be your last day. Yeah, that's a lot better. <laughs> some people say, you know, things were so much better before we had all these kids. Married people say, you know, things were so much better before I was married. This is folly. 
You know, the whole idea of the good old days. Every time you think of the good old days, you ever realize you're only thinking about all the positive stuff? You forget all the bad stuff? You forget all the trials back in the good old days? All the trouble, all the turmoil, your own immaturity? The good old days. So wisdom has a certain perception about life. It's not nostalgic. It's not merely sentimental. It's not hyper-emotional. And people who live like that who are Christians usually have very poor doctrine. It's like the word of faith movement. You just speak it away. In the name of Jesus, I'm going to have a good day. Whatever. Decrepit word of faith movement. So the preacher... He sings the praises of wisdom in verses 11 and 12. Verse 11. I'm running out of time, so I'm going to skip some stuff. Wisdom is good with an inheritance, an advantage to those who see the sun. For the protection of wisdom is like the protection of money, and the advantage of, the advantage of knowledge is that wisdom preserves the life of him who has it. Now, inheritance here, the context of the original audience, ought to be seen in the context of land. Israel was promised what? Land. Promised land. It was to be divided up for inheritance. We read in Numbers 26. So land meant food, stability, security. Land for the Israelites was was a permanent possession. Even if you were forced to sell it under hard times, at the year of Jubilee, you would return. Leviticus 25.13. And in this year of Jubilee, each of you shall return to his property. So an inheritance is great. I, don't, I, I, I was trying to think one day if I had anyone in my family who will leave me an inheritance, and there's nothing, nobody. <laughs> nobody that I can think of. It's great, money is nice, but wisdom along with it is, is much better. So as much as we've learned about materialism and wealth and money, which isn't bad in and of itself, what he says here, wisdom applied, okay, wisdom is the wisdom applied is like having money in the bank. Wisdom applied is like a good inheritance. Money can provide certain protections. Right? Practical realities of life. Wisdom protects the soul. I mean, if you have money, you're not going to go hungry. That's, that's the terminology being used. Wisdom protects you in the long run. So, when he talks about life here, he's not talking about eternal life. But he's talking about life on earth, and yet even, even higher life of having a proper understanding of death. That's what we've seen so far. Century late, centuries later, and as I close with this, one wiser than Solomon came. Okay, Solomon writes about wisdom of living life on earth. Jesus Christ came and he talked about eternal life, Amen. Eternal life. And Jesus said this, and this is eternal life. That they know you. This is in the high priestly prayer, John 17. That they know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. I am the resurrection and the life, Jesus said. In Matthew, 
Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet he shall live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? He asked Martha. He has the words of eternal life. So let me close with this story. I have one minute. Charles Ward. Charles Ward. This is from Riken's commentary. Charles Ward had this kind of wisdom. Ward served in the Union Army as a sergeant with the 32nd Massachusetts Volunteers. In one of his last letters home, he wrote, I hope I come home again, but life here is uncertain. The soldier was right about the uncertainties of life and death because a few days later he was mortally wounded in the bloody wheat field at Gettysburg. Although he lingered for a little while, Ward died within the week. In his last letter home, he wrote, Dear Mother, I may not again see you, but do not fear for your tired soldier boy. Death has no fears for me. My hope is still firm in Jesus. Meet me and Father in heaven with all my dear friends. I have no special message to send to you, but bid you all a happy farewell. Your affectionate and soldier son, Charles Ward. If we're wise, Riken goes on to say, we will follow Ward's example by laying death to heart and looking ahead to what God has planned for us in Christ, we will live wisely and die well. Amen.